It's main event time, guys. It is time to prepare for our season-long high-stakes leagues. This is one of my favorite shows we do every year. We bring in Rotoviz's Sean Siegel. We pick his brain. We get to the bottom of the zero RB targets, the current drafting landscape, everything you need to know to be prepared for draft season. Let's do it. Pat Fryer Helmo. <laughs> This is Anita Hanjab. Fix your sight. Jamar. Alpha play chase. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Are you Tony? You can't handle the heat. He looks like we're finally at this point. You're right. The infamous line immortalized on stream. Sean, are you still horrified every time you remember that we got you to say that? You know... Yes, we'll go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, an all-time iconic moment that uh, will never come out of the intro around here. Um, well, Sean, as I said in the intro, very excited to have you here. I feel like every year, I remember two years ago, I believe when you first did the show, it was right when you had just started doing more content on the audio side. And it felt like such a treat to get you away from just the keyboard and hear your thoughts. And now we're so blessed with, you know, year round, you're doing all kinds of great stuff with Colm, with Ben, obviously still got your writing stuff going. But uh, what does it feel like turning into more of a multimedia fantasy football personality than just a writer? Well, I, I guess I don't really know. And that's, again, one of the things I'm not really getting all that feedback. But it's been an absolute blast doing all those shows with Colin doing the shows over the last year with Ben, I, I mean, they've become my best friends and it's just an amazing experience. I'm sure on the other side of it, there are a lot of listeners that are like, they could make fewer shows. We, we don't <laughs> need that much, Sean. So, um, but I, I enjoy it. I love it every day. So it's, it's been a lot of fun. For sure. And if, if people haven't checked out, you did a recent one with Column where you it was more, I think you guys were taking some questions from listeners and you were kind of recapping your your starts in the industry and even kind of your your day-to-day. And even as a as a Sean super fan, I enjoyed just hearing what the uh, day-to-day machinations of a Sean Siegel uh, you know, workday look like. So highly recommend everyone checks out uh Rotoviz overtime if you guys aren't listening. Obviously, stealing bananas as well. Uh Pat and Ben, how are you guys doing tonight? Doing good. Excited for this one. Me too. I mean, this is one where I'm like, I'm excited to sit back. You guys all get to hear from me enough. I'm going to listen to you guys chat with each other a little bit. This is a fun fun one for me. Obviously, I do podcasting with both of you, both all three of you all the time. So this is great. Michael Dubner says your next move is viral TikTok star. Is that in the cards, Sean? You know, I don't know. Column, it seems like. I've He's he's having so much fun now putting together the sort of YouTube thumbnails or whatever they're called. And a handful of them have been pretty fun. So we're excited about everything Colin's doing over there. I love just imagining the way like things from Twitter and YouTube thumbnails get relayed to you. You know, like I assume, you know, someone sends out like a singing telegram or the Pony Express and it gets, you know, dropped off at your doorstep and you're like, oh, another one to call them zany thumbnails. This is a great thumbnail. Puts it back in the mail. <laughs> it sends it back. Um, so how are, how are you in, in general just feeling about uh, this season? I mean, it seems like every year that 
the the trends are starting to skew closer to the kind of things you were writing about five, six years ago. And even looking at like the first round of drafts this year, where so many drafters are willing to pass on running backs to grab those elite wide receivers. Do, do you feel that kind of title change right now? Or does it feel like business as usual? Yeah, I, obviously, as there's just so much good information out there now, I think you can't help but see drafts sort of move in a more efficient direction. Obviously, ship chasing has been just a massive influence on how drafts work. And I mean, the three of you obviously are among the very best drafters out there. So that's going to push drafts in that direction. We also have a situation where, it, you know, there's going to be chasing the previous season every year. And last year, the first round was fairly weak with the running backs. We now have these historic level wide receivers. And I mean, the first round is weak again at running back. And so that's going to move us in a little bit different direction. If in the past you were a little bit skeptical about zero RB because you didn't think you could get that elite receiver scoring. Now you have Cup and Jefferson and Chase, and it just makes it a much easier decision. It's similar, I think, to being back when you had Calvin Johnson, and you know he was so clearly the best player at the skill positions in the NFL, but also his scoring really matched up with the running backs. And so at that time, too, in some ways, even though obviously it wasn't as popular as it is now, but, I mean, Calvin Johnson was a pretty easy first-round pick. Yeah, it, Gretchen... And Pat, I mean, it's something I've been thinking about a lot lately where in previous years, it did seem like the obvious decision was just, no, the wide receiver is by far the best play, the best pick at all of these junctures. This year feels a little trickier. Like you kind of have to do some zigging and zagging to get the pockets meshing up, you know, in a way that wasn't as obvious as I feel like it was in years past. Good point. I think you're muted, Pat. Yeah. Are we oh, sorry, I'm muted. Um, <laughs> no, I was just I was just mentioning like AJ Brown uh, strikes me as someone, you know, if he had stayed in Tennessee, I think he'd be kind of a feature of like the early second round. Uh, if T Higgins were not paired with Jamar Chase, you know, he'd be right there. So there's like some some guys talent wise that certainly belong in that part of the draft, but they're going in like the early thirds. <laughs> so it, it is a bit much to like reach for them all the way in the early second uh, it's just kind of created this like pretty interesting situation where at the end of the, the on the back half of the board you're staring down these running backs and some of the running backs aren't i don't think i think they are pretty decent picks there like i like deandre swift a lot uh i feel like in maybe four or five years ago Najee harris would be like the 102 you know yeah. to get you know like so it's like okay well if he's like the 111 it seems okay you know so there, it definitely feels. That's why I think where the, the draft rooms feel like the most different to me is you're you're looking at the potential to go like running back, running back, um, and then you're not even necessarily like at a, a huge disadvantage to what the the teams that are, are two and three are doing because they started with wide receiver and they may in fact go wide receiver, wide receiver, wide receiver, and so you are at a disadvantage, but at least you have a different structure. Uh, than they do. We've talked about this in some of our main main event decisions. It definitely feels different um, from from those spots for sure. One of the things I would say that has influenced this, and you, you bringing up AJ Brown's a, a great example because I think it, I think it's really interesting. You said if if he was still in Tennessee, he might be in the early second. I think he's in a 
I think he's a better pick in Philadelphia. I think there's more unknown in a positive way. I don't think the Tennessee situation was necessarily great for him. So I've, I've thought he was a really good value where he's going for most of the offseason. But on both of our shows, <laughs> I, was, I was about to say on this show, but also with Sean, since the offseason, we've been talking about um, how crazy this, this offseason has been, how crazy 22 is going to be for fantasy football, how many – huge players change teams and franchises the whole identity shifted right like the, the the huge franchise altering quarterback moves are, are the biggest ones russell wilson leaving seattle and going to denver and so many others but even you know tyreek hill and Devonte adams and there's so many and those are players that the skill players particularly that typically would go in in this range i think you know a lot of them to me, it just feels like we have these five guys at the top that we feel really good about. They're in the same spots. We feel awesome about them. We saw Travis Kelsey. We feel awesome about him. But the rest of the league feels like it's very much in a transition year. 2022 feels like a transition year for the entire league in a way that I still have wrapped my head around, and we have a month ago until the season. Yeah, I mean, even just, it, I mean, the entire offseason was littered with wide receivers either changing teams or getting massive contracts, as it seemed like the NFL and these franchises started to view wide receivers in a different way than they had previously. And it's almost funny to think back to, we had the studies on, hey, wide receivers changing teams, you know, typically their production decreased after that. And then, of course, we had Diggs and, and Hopkins kind of buck that trend. And now we're in this other era. I mean, how many do we have? Like six, seven of these guys who have changed teams? It does seem like so much uncertainty with elite talent. Sean, how are you kind of handling that? Because I do think A.J. Brown and Tyreek Hill and even Devontae Adams, like some of these guys are a little bit, they're less, they feel less safe, less comfy than they would be if they were just back on their same teams. I love it, right? Because the more uncertainty you have, the wider the range of outcomes, especially you know, for players who could score a ton of points, who could be the league winners, who could be the tournament winners, the better prices you're going to get on them, the more opportunity you have to stack a lot of those guys together, and the more opportunity you have to be right in a way where perhaps not everybody in the community is. And and it's just a lot of fun because you know you can go after your particular guys. You can have takes that maybe are a little bit stronger than if everybody at the top were locked into you know, very clear-cut volume and role and rapport with the QB. To not have that, I'm really excited for 2022. Yeah, Tyreek Hill's a great example because, I mean, if he was still in the Chiefs, <laughs> I mean, he'd be going ahead of Devontae Adams, right? So yes. it's a huge discount you're getting on him. And then Debo's another guy who comes to mind. I feel like the contract situation still sort of knocking him down a little bit, but then obviously Trey Lance and the uncertainty and the quarterback change is, is definitely affecting. How often do you see a, a player have a year like Debo and then they and the team goes to the NFC Championship and then they say, oh, but we're changing quarterbacks voluntarily. Like even yeah, that is like a different – that's a modern thing. That didn't used to happen in the NFL 10 years ago. Yeah, and how often do you see a, a guy like Debo have the season that he did and then people are kind of like, eh, yeah, I guess late second's fine. <laughs> yeah and and that was another thing i wanted to ask you about sean because an, another thing that's been super fun this year is uh, you know you've done ffpc best ball stuff 
uh, for a while, but this year you really have dove into the underdog streets as well. And I know even early on, and we get it around here too. People get mad at us when we're not just pissing yellow, ripping five straight wide receivers at every draft. You start with a couple running backs. I know a lot of Rotoviz listeners are like, Hey Sean, why are you doing all these hyper fragile builds? Play the hits. I mean, will you talk about that dynamic? Do you think it has changed now as we've gotten into August? How different are you approaching things from a season long perspective? Because you were really willing to stack, you know, some of those running backs early, at least earlier in the off season. Yeah. And I think that there, I mean, there are some scoring formats and ADP <clears throat> developments that strongly incentivize you to at least consider some hyper fragile builds. And I, hopefully it's comforting slash encouraging for, Rotoviz subscribers and OT stealing bananas listeners, people who might be considering subscribing and have heard of Rotoviz only in the context of, you know, those guys are kind of crazy. They're just going to do zero RB regardless of what happens. To know that it's not this dogmatic approach and it's not an approach without flexibility or that we're not looking for the best opportunities in any, any given year, in any given format, and or that you know, we're not willing to provide intel and insights for drafters who do want to go a little bit different direction because, I mean, obviously not everybody just wants to draft zero RB all the time. This year has this really cool dynamic where drafters are very justifiably scared of the dead zone for running backs. And yet because of that, and because we have some potential breakout guys and players like ETN and Hall and Dobbins and Akers, you can put those guys together on a team, and especially I think if you put them on a team with Taylor and McCaffrey, there are scenarios that could play out to where you then have an unbeatable super team, right? And again, in some specific formats, you have to consider doing that, especially if you think that you can draft receivers well the rest of the way. I mean, one of the things with a zero RB approach is that you, I mean, you don't ever give up on you know, evaluating all of the breakout wide receivers. One of the things that we talk about a lot and talked about through the years is that even with the zero RB builds, you need to have breakout receivers. That's not just established stars. And then, you know, there are some, some players in the double digit rounds who I think are good values at wide receiver. Now it doesn't change the dynamic that wide receiver is shallower than people think that it is. And obviously if you do an OT listener league or a ship chasing league, <laughs> you find out very quickly how shallow wide receiver is, but I do like to, have some of those drafts. And I do like running backs, right? I mean, there are going to be some running backs who are just so much fun to root for. If you have a format and an ADP environment in which you can have exposure to those guys, then I mean, that's just, that's a really cool development. At the same time, I'm currently in the Apex Experts League <laughs> and I did not draft a wide receiver, uh, a running back in the first nine rounds. So still some extreme zero RB plays out there. It is interesting because, like, I, I do agree that dead zone is, like, maybe a little less dead. Like, I think, you know, three, four years ago, Josh Jacobs, Antonio Gibson, David Montgomery would probably be going, like, around ahead of where they are, maybe a round and a half. But I feel like they're still – I mean, sometimes in these underdog drafts and stuff, they'll fall basically the seventh, eighth round truly out, out of the dead zone. But – uh you know, they're still generally hanging around in those rounds. And then, like, Joe Mixon's still a feature of the one-two turn, which, which feels like very 2019 to me. You know <laughs> what I mean? So it's like it, it, things have changed, but they haven't changed completely. 
Yeah. And that was one thing I also had been feeling. And I think I brought this up on our show last week where in previous years, conventional wisdom was everyone gobbles up the running backs. They push these elite wide receivers down to the back end of the first and second round. And one thing you always talk about, Sean, that was kind of just burned into my head was this idea of like, you don't want to just draft a watered down version of the team from the one-on-one slot and then push really good wide receivers down to them on the back end. And I feel like the dynamic is different this year where it's flipped, where I'm like, I'm sometimes staring at CD lamb and I'm like, I feel like I'm just drafting a watered down version of the Jamar chase and Cooper cup team. And, you know, Higgins. Who's about to add T Higgins or Debo Samuel in a, in a slider, AJ Brown. And so that that's why I've been more willing and open to like, yeah, let's go for Swift. Let's go for Barkley. Let's find one of Pat's running backs that has legendary upside in this range. Cause that's the only way I feel like I can combat those teams. Do you, are you feeling that, that dynamic? Yes and no. I, for a long time I was, and that was another reason that was doing a lot of either anchor RB or, hyper fragile. I mean, especially when Barkley's price was just crazy. I mean, I, th- there was a month there where I took Barkley in basically every draft because number one, you're thinking, I mean, he has that legendary upside. And so you want that player really at any price. And then number two, you're thinking, I mean, he's going to get so much more expensive. If I'm going to buy, I'm going to buy now because I, even though I think he's a good value at 203, I'm going to be competing with a lot of teams who took him at the 305. And so maybe from that perspective, but again, I mean, you're going to get other picks. You can't simply stay away from a guy because somebody else got him at a better value, but I have been coming around a little bit to the idea that a digs a little bit, but Devonte Adams, I mean, he's a, he's a fun one because probably he falls off quite a bit, but one of the things to remember with him is he could fall off quite a bit and still be a pretty good player at the one, two turn. And then Lamb now with how things have really kind of imploded in Dallas. I, I don't do a lot of playing volume at wide receiver, but if you do think that there's a guy who has star potential, and one of the weird things about you know, how last season played out is they almost seem to go out of their way to not throw him the ball so they could show that Amari Cooper is still a legitimate NFL player and they could do this, that, and thing. Well, it paid off. They get a six-round pick for him. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, that that was like what happened, I remember, with Dez back in the day, right? I remember having Dez Bryant on my fantasy team and watching him, and they just let him just be on an island the entire game, and Tony Romo's not throwing over. You're like, why why are you not getting this incredible playmaker of the ball? It did feel like that with CeeDee Lamb, and it's funny that I brought up the CeeDee Lamb example because I was trying to pull up the Apex League draft you were just referencing here where you did go uh, full yellow here, or I guess green on my fantasy league, but you did do the Lamb Adam start. And this is obviously a wide receiver friendly format, but it seemed like you were completely willing. Like what, what made you pass on, you know, a Barclay or Swift in this situation, whereas you might not in other draft rooms. The the funnier one is when we were doing a, a recording yesterday that maybe doesn't come out till later, but or maybe it wasn't even on the recording, but he was talking to me about his pick at, at 802 and he was thinking he might have to take David Montgomery and then he took Ron Del Moore over David Montgomery. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's incredible. That's so good. I mean, you could never live with yourself if you took David Montgomery over Rondell Moore. That would be absurd. <laughs> well, so just to be clear, though, this this league does not have special teams uh, touchdowns as, as part of the score. <laughs> David Montgomery starting punt returner. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, 
I do wish that Deontay Johnson maybe wasn't the the three eleven. Although again, I mean his target profile at that price is pretty crazy. This draft has created a lot of value at running back. And so one of the things that I wanted to play was number one, I haven't had enough wide receiver firepower in this league because of injuries the past several years. I didn't want that to happen again. Number two, I was expecting the potential to get players like ETN, Hall, Dobbins at good prices. That didn't exactly work out the way I was hoping. Um, Mike Brody, who runs Apex, had the pick right before me. He and I have similar boards. He's dominated this league through the years. And so, I mean, obviously he took Dobbins there. A spot before I would have taken him, I would have like, like had that. So a little bit of it was sort of drafting back to front, perhaps thought there were going to be some different players there. But looking at it, and this is one of the things that you see if you pull up the range of outcomes tool or you pull up the win the flex tool. And obviously the range of outcomes has historical matches gives you a, a sense of the range of how those guys have done then in years after that the when the flex gives you implied points by adp based on historical outcomes both of those would tell you that the receivers there are still likely to score more points and so from that perspective and in part because i just do have a lot of swift and i have a lot of barkley from as the season has progressed i wanted to go with lands lamb adams there a little bit too in preparation for some of these main events that are coming up because I think in the main events, it's going to make a lot of sense to have some of those builds. And so, you know, it just always helps to go through and draft some of those teams, see how you feel about them, make sure that you know how you want it to work out. You can make some changes before you have a $2,000 league for a million dollars and maybe don't execute your draft the way you want. You think you're going to have a lot of lambs at and lamb Adams? That, that gets well, back to Pete's question before about, you know, how to attack the end of the first round and how do you feel about that relative to cup jefferson chase getting aj brown or whoever as their second receiver it feels like those two receivers to, again to pete's question it feels like those two receivers are going to crush lamb and adams i think it's likely and yet at the same time one of the things that i do like this year that i don't think was the dynamic last year even though it worked out very positively because obviously Jonathan Taylor is in that range. You know, we had a lot of him. He crushed. Christian McCaffrey gets hurt. And so suddenly this huge advantage for early drafters that appeared to be there disappeared instantly. And that's always a good sort of reminder of how dynamic these seasons are, how chaotic they are. You don't want to just assume that things are going to happen and or that you know more than you know. I mean, we obviously don't know how the season is going to progress. For the exact reasons that you guys mentioned, I think that we're moving in the direction of those cup Jefferson chase teams, maybe not having quite the advantage. It seems like, because there are some risks with Debo, especially with Brandon Ayuk theoretically having just a spectacular camp. There are risks. I mean, there are risks with Tyreek Hill. I, mean, I really actually prefer to play that through Jalen Waddle because of the discount. There are, I mean, I think you have to draft T. Higgins. I would draft him earlier, but because of Chase there and because of Boyd there, I mean, you do have some potential limitations. And then A.J. Don't, Brown, don't again, do you the same kind of, don't do it. <laughs> we won't even mention Ben's favorite player there. But the other. No, no, you, you got it. You got no, it. No. Give us the bear What's case. wrong with A.J. Brown? Well, do it, Sean. <laughs> 
soon as Devontae Smith gets back from this groin injury, we're going to see, uh, I mean, who the 1A and who the 1B is, right, Ben? <laughs> oh, wow. Not, not really that concerned about this thing. <laughs> Stealing signals canceled. Uh, Stealing bananas canceled for the rest of the year. Oh, man. I think um, stealing sickles might, yeah, might be a play as well. Yeah. Can, I, uh, so that, can I ask you about Kelsey, um, who obviously in FFPC is not going to be uh, on the back half of this board. But, you know, you look at FFPC last year, he's like the 102, 103, and now he's the 106. Uh, I think Pete and I in each of our FFPC um, pros versus Joe's drafts got him at the 106. And – in you know underdog kind of PPR drafts, you are seeing Kelsey kind of in the 108 through like 110 type of range, maybe even a little later. So I don't know. I, he he feels like obviously he's he, his A dot dropped last year, his efficiency dropped. He's what 33. Uh, so there's a lot of risk there. But I mean, he has very little target competition potentially. Like there are scenarios where it, the offense is just flowing through Travis Kelsey. Uh, at the same time, you do get sometimes Pitts coming back in the third. Sometimes Kittle falls back, uh, depending on where you are. You know, you, you do have a shot at Kittle at like the 107, 108 uh, in the fifth round. So, and you could obviously get Waller if you like in the fourth. So, there's like a ton of other options at tight end, but he, I think, could be one of the hinge points. Yeah. Ben and I started Stefan Diggs, Travis Kelsey last night drafted Kelsey at the 203. And so he obviously is sliding in some non-premium formats. I guess I'm looking at the other direction, and this is probably due to having grown up in Kansas City and being a pretty big Chiefs fan. So every time that, you know, when the MVS is dominating OTAs reports, you know, I'm like, well, they're going to have at least one guy. When training camp starts and Juju is like, his 21 year old self, like, okay, we have two. And then Sky Moore is back from, you know, the injuries that limited a little bit in the off season work. And obviously, you know, if he's going to have a ship chasing highlight, now, now you've got three, you had McCall Hardman who evidently is still on the roster and made <laughs> a big play the other day. You've got four. So I think there's more target competition than there was in the past and, and perhaps substantially more. At the same time, I think Mark Andrews and Kyle Pitts are unbelievable plays at tight end. And so, especially if you can take one of the first rounders and then one of those two guys, as opposed to Kelsey and having dropped down into round two, I do like to, to play it that way. Yeah. Yeah, that make that makes sense. And we, we, we were had bummed. A, oh, go ahead, Ben. No, well, go. We, we were bummed. We took Kelsey at 203, and we were happy to take it, but then – our discussion was if Pitts comes back, we're going to be annoyed. And he made it, he made it all the way back to the end of the third. And whenever you that get happens, that, that happens a lot. Every time I'm in a draft and I take Kelsey Pitts is there. And every time I don't take Kelsey <laughs> Pitts is not there. It's so frustrating, but it, I, I, there was a period where I was taking a lot of Travis Kelsey and I basically stopped because Pitts was so reliably falling to the end of the third round in drafts that I was, I was just going to wait for him. Um, and it actually, you know, the, where Kittle's going, I have probably a little less Mark Andrews than I'd like to, because if you're like at the, you know, the one of four or something, Kittle's pretty safe to get back to you at the five Oh four. So he's, he's another, I mean, there's lots of uncertainty in, uh, San Francisco and, and target competition there as well. But I mean, 
fifth round Kittle is hard for me to pass on. Sean had some good notes on – got me a little more excited about Kittle. We recorded – I think I mentioned already or maybe not, but we recorded three episodes of Steel Bananas yesterday. Our producer, Calm Kelly's heading to the FF Expo. Um, so he got a, a bunch of stuff prepared for us. One of them centered almost entirely on the five, the top five tight ends, which I think, Sean, we both agree, right? It's just like I, – I think it's the most like important part of drafts this year. I think it's like super, super important to get right. And it's super nuanced and interesting. I know I've talked with you guys, Pat and Pete, about n- – it's weird because they're at tight end. There's not a lot of names. They're the clear sort of like top five elite ones, but they also stretch throughout different tiers of receiver. And if you think of them sort of in those receiver tiers, they're all kind of in their own tiers. I've gotten to the point where I think Pitts and Andrews are sort of the same tier. They're like a half step down from Kelsey. I think it's like a full tier down to Waller and Kittle. And I was describing that as being sort of a, a half step apart. I think Sean got me excited enough on Kittle to maybe move him back. Not a half. How you value those five, because they do have different price points attached as well, is really going to just determine whether you're willing to gamble on waiting on Waller and Kittle or even the decision we had last night, whether to take you know Kelsey at 203 or gamble on Pitts. All, but elite tight end seems super, super important this year. Sean just said, like, the, the top three for me, for some people it's more top five. But those guys, there's not as many five, good profiles at the position after that. This year, it's a thin, it's a thin position profile wise, not just that it plays out thin, which it always kind of does, but there's just not a lot to like, frankly, after the top five. What are your thoughts, Sean, on, and anyone who's been listening to uh, Stealing Bananas knows how hyped uh, you are on Kyle Pitts, but let's talk about Waller and Kittle because they seem there seems to be like this conflict here of a lot of people like us really prefer the structural edge of having that elite tight end, but there is somewhat of a discrepancy. I feel like in the ADPs of Kittle and Waller, and it's not just on underdog, whereas Chris G points out in the chat, Kittle sometimes falls into the sixties, which I've seen as well. It's also playing out to a lesser extent on FFPC where we were able to get Waller in one of our main events at three eleven, which seems like an absurd price tag for what he offers you. Like, Did we give what, it 402 on the way back around? I think we took AJ Brown at the 311 and still oh, got right. Waller That's at the right. 402. 402. <laughs> Waller yeah. at the 402. Yeah, I completely forgot. With Sean that. in that Apex yeah. draft, it, it, we were talking about this too. He got Kittle at 602. I mean, wide receiver you, heavy draft, but that's crazy. What do you make of that, Sean? Because to me, specifically on, on Underdog 2, where the way that tournament is structured with those individual tournaments in weeks 15, 16, 17, like the ceiling that those guys offer you and the separation. I mean, you can go look at Kittle's game logs. Like the dude can put up 40 and just lap the field. But I guess maybe it's a little bit of a different calculus in a week 15 through 17 sprint. But I guess like, what are your just thoughts on Waller, Kittle, and why the market isn't maybe valuing them quite as much as we are. Well, one of the things that you talk about the underdog tournament and how that plays out and just how inexpensive so many of the tight ends are. And so you do feel this push to wait because you can get guys that you can talk yourself into and not just one, but three, if you want to play it that way. I mean, there are a lot of builds where really two tight end is much, much stronger, but if you're going to get three guys you like, like deep into the double digit rounds, you're going to feel some push to do that. And there is that pressure on Kelsey at his price to have just an absolutely mammoth season. And yet at the same time, one of the things that you see is that he can have a very low 
playoff advance rate and still have a high semifinal or final advance rate because he has one of those big games and everybody who's still left who has him moves on. And so from that perspective, you have a trump card. I mean, imagine a season in which, you know, he, he actually does put up enough to have a solid playoff advance rate as well. And that's kind of what we're going for with a handful of these guys. Waller is interesting because, again, you just have that huge uncertainty of the new coach. And so I, I kind of wanted to ask you guys what you think. And we've had some very conflicting reports about the Patriots. On the one hand, you hear, okay, the, the simpler, more streamlined offense is helping these guys play faster. You have the reports that they're getting just, you know, absolutely dominated by their defense, which, I mean, their defense is good. And so being dominated by the Patriots defense in practice is probably not as bad as being dominated by some other ones. But, I mean, the Patriots could really suffer from losing McDaniels at the same time. I mean, are the Raiders going to be able to really execute his offense this year? Or is it more a 2023 target for those guys? But, I mean, you hope it's not 2023 because Devontae Adams and Darren Waller are not spring chickens. I mean, they need to be good this year. And so I think having Devontae Adams there, I'm – a pretty big Derek Carr believer. I don't think he's a superstar, but I think he's an above average QB. I think if they want to attack and play through their better players, as opposed to trying to show people that, oh, we can run out five different running backs and have them all touch the ball five times and we can somehow move the ball down in three yard chunks. If they go out and use their good players, the fact that you had Devontae Adams means that Duran Waller should be completely uncoverable by defenses. And so you have the potential for some huge games. And again, just that potential if you draft the rest of your team well enough to you know, survive some growing pains or survive the fact that you used an early pick on a tight end, part of the using the tight end is a belief in your ability to execute the rest of the draft, right? But if you do that and then you have that powerful team and in the playoffs, you get one of these big games from a Waller or a Kittle or a Pitts, you know, whomever of that group, you completely separated yourself from any team that went with the three late tight ends. My, my issue with the Raiders is the offensive line. I I feel like in terms of the complexity of the offense, like maybe, maybe that could be an issue, but I mean, Carr is, he had mastered Gruden's offense, which is like needlessly complex. So I feel like he's, he's probably capable of getting there. Devontae Adams, obviously. Isn't it just spider two wide banana? Yeah, that's it. He just calls that repeatedly. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It sounds like there's maybe a bit more flexibility built into this offense, which is which is nice. Um, And then, yeah, I mean, Devontae Adams. I feel like you know he's he's like super super hardworking guy. Like I feel like he'll be fine uh, adapting to the new offense. Uh, Renfro's got the chemistry. Waller's got the chemistry already with Carr. But man, that offensive line, it was bad last year. It doesn't seem like there's really like any paths to it making a huge leap. And so that concerns me in terms of the passing volume, like then just kind of being more conservative, uh, maybe similar to some of the stuff we were seeing last year with the Bengals, where they just weren't opening it up the way we wanted to. And it was getting very frustrating because you kind of see this offense was capable of a lot more. And then obviously, you know, we did get that at the very end of the season, but I guess that, that would be maybe the bigger concern I have than, uh, than them getting on the same page in the McDaniels offense. 
Yeah. So, but do you think Sean, like, is it still your preference in main event drafts, football guys drafts, any of these tight end premium to get one of those top five tight ends, or are you open to configurations? Think there might be an opportunity cost at some of those spots and you're willing to play it through some of those guys cheaper. Well, I was trying to make sure I don't put myself into a position where I feel like I have to take a certain player or I have to use a certain build. I mean, there are going to be some circumstances that come up. And I, I think that, I mean, Kittle both excites and scares me in that when you have three potentially elite pass catchers in an offense that could be extremely low volume, I mean, I just, I hate not being on Samuel or not being on Kittle. And I've drafted a ton of Samuel, so it's not like I'm not on him. But it really does force you to just move away from the risk and look at someone like an Ayuk if he's mm-hmm. you know theoretically developing, because then you have both the positive and you've you know minimized your risk that they just don't have the passing volume there. And if it turns out that the passing volume is there or Lance is just extremely efficient, then you win that way too, because you know now you have both things. So, so I don't want to force myself into it, but I don't think that we're in a position where Andrews and Pitts prices and the other options there. I mean, one of the things is that, yeah, I mean, Swift and Barkley, very compelling picks in round two. But other than them, I mean, you don't have anybody you have to get. And so you're just going to end up with a lot of, of Andrews and Pitts. At the same time, no offense out there. Ben knows that the, the Seahawks are going to take this big step yeah. forward. And after Pat's guy has been the, I mean, the player of the entire offseason, we're finally getting some Albert O reports. And mm-hmm. the fact that the Broncos have now practiced and seen that he may be the best tight end in football. Yeah, they're moving him around because they got to clear the tight end spot for Greggy Dulcich. <laughs> well, I, let me let me try to nail you down on more specific, Sean. And I have pulled up here, and this is an awesome tool on Rotoviz, by the way. They just have this ADP draft bid. I obviously have it filtered to main events, but if you are preparing for these drafts, it's really nice to be able to see these pockets of the draft. And once you know your draft slot, you can really start to plan ahead. And I do think, you know, when you're drafting from like six on in the back half, you can see here it's actually a pretty sweet spot to have all these different cracks at these tight ends. I actually think you could make a case that from the one and two spot, it's actually a little harder because Kelsey's not making it back to you. Mark Andrews isn't making it back to you. Pitts isn't making it back to you. And then you have to make the decision. Do I reach for Waller here at three, one, because then Waller and Kittle aren't going to make it back in outside of extreme examples. So like that would be a good example here, Sean, if you're able to start, you know, with Christian McCaffrey, T Higgins is like Darren Waller priority at three, two, or is this a spot where, you are letting him go knowing like, I'm not going to get one of these top five tight ends. Yeah. I think that you have to strongly consider that. Certainly if you are a big T Higgins believer, then I think that you probably have to pass. And thankfully there is this dynamic because otherwise Mm -hmm. someone with a top five pick just has such a huge edge because you have five guys and then I mean, you have basically everybody else more or less counts as a second round pick. So you're, you're so far behind if you don't have a top five pick. This tight end dynamic does balance that out. Yeah. 
I know we, I know we were sweating in some drafts in, in that same Waller draft where we got him at 402. Kittle did slide far and we were sweating bullets of the, you know, the 101 team who had a nice build going, <laughs> being able to get Kittle. It just seemed almost unfair at that point if they're able to kind of add that, that tight end piece there. And you can see the dynamic too there with it really pulling Dalton Schultz up because at the if you have the one, two, three, all of those teams are going to be seriously considering him, you know, either end of the four, beginning of five, just to make sure they have somebody to try and compete with those top guys. Where are you at on that next tier? Because that's yeah, to me, the way I'm handling that is I'm not taking I'm not taking much Schultz. I'm not taking uh, much TJ Hawkinson, who I know you like, Sean. I take some Goddard. I, I don't take much Dawson Knox. I don't take really any Zach Ertz. Uh, so I'm kind of sitting out. And then I actually don't love the next tier of guys either. So part of the reason I think I'm so into the elite tight ends this year is that, like, yeah, like Irv Smith, you know, Pat Fryer moves. Like, those guys are interesting, but they don't feel, like, that much better than Gerald Everett or Noah Fant. Uh, You know, so – I just at that point I feel like now I'm paying like a, a premium to pick pick a guy from the same large tier and I'd rather just wait again. So if I don't have an elite tight end, I find myself waiting a lot. But I, I know you you probably feel uh, more bullish on some of the guys I mentioned. Well, I do like Hawkinson, and I'm always trying to get Ben on board with Jerry Goff. But Why? yeah, I mean, there's I, that's an offense that I think is going to have a lot of of target pressure. I think that they have a lot of of weapons now. And so you look at Hawkinson that could help him. I always try and point out that last season when his efficiency was not what you want from a guy who's going to be drafted as a borderline elite tight end. Now that's when he's being triple teamed and he's got two injuries, right? And so it doesn't really matter how good you are when you're dealing with that circumstance, your efficiency is going to be poor, whether or not things like shift so far to the opposite end of the spectrum in terms of the target pressure is kind of a different story. I think that you do have to then wait. And it's not that every season is going to be just like the last, but we do have quite a bit of evidence that drafters who miss the elite tight ends and then chase don't do well. And so once you get out of that top range, I think that you have to prioritize players like Cole Komet, like Albert O, like Noah Fant. It doesn't seem like Gerald Everett is generating any camp buzz which is disappointing for me because i do have a lot of him but he would be a possibility and then i think that drafting the rookies at the very end and just stashing them for a bit and seeing how it plays out obviously dulcich now a little bit of a a pause maybe in the buzz trey mcbride you're going to benefit because i don't believe that he's practicing a little bit of a sore back that kind of thing is a, a mild concern if you are actually somehow putting yourself in a position where you would need to start them at the beginning of the year. But even though it can be frustrating, there is this benefit to having some of your targets miss a little bit of practice or not just be you know, like 75% of NFL players right now are having a fantastic camp. If you can have some of your targets in that 25% that's not being talked about, you just get a lot better value. Speaking of, where are you at on Traylon Burks? <laughs> uh, ben tells me he's going to be an absolute league winner, going to easily lead the Titans. I, it seemed like there were a couple days in there where the beat writers and, and folks covering the team had gotten a lot more optimistic 
And then it took a very quick U-turn again. I, I think that that's great, right? Because if you look at Burks as a prospect, if you look at Burks in terms of the opportunity in this offense, I mean, he should be going in the fifth round. The fact that he's much less expensive because he's having a little bit of a slower start. This isn't anything like Jamar Chase having drops because he's not anything close to Jamar Chase. But these rookie wide receivers and the way that this has developed over the last three years, the impact that rookies are making, if you can have a guy who has a bad camp and is a big time player, that's a gift. And I mean, you have to take advantage of it, at least some, right? You have to put yourself in a position where you're drafting teams that can afford some of those misses. Because if you're drafting teams to where you can't take those risks, I mean, you're not going to win the whole thing. It just, it just doesn't work that way. And that's, that's something I've been thinking about a lot too, with just ADPs in general and how they are getting more efficient, but the two ways that they're really efficient is one in people's ability to kind of project season long performance over the cross over the course of 17 seasons and often waiting beginning of season performance, even more than end of season performance. And then two news-based stuff like drafters now are so plugged in. There is no information edge on any, any of these drafters. I, I actually disagree with that. Um, I I've been kind of, I've been interested because there's been periods of the off season where I'm like, Oh, this is priced in. And then it turns out to have not been priced in like Isaiah McKenzie is the one that comes to mind where like, James Crowder was going ahead of him in the 12th round or whatever. McKenzie's a 17th, 18th round pick. And McKenzie was running with the starters, all of OTAs, all of minicamp. And then finally, like it kind of cracked through. So there was like enough of a blurb. There was like an informational shift. But I do think you can kind of outgrind the public still but, a little bit. Yeah, but like that's I think that's splitting hairs to my overall point of like you see ADP move in conjunction with these news. Like you get those reports and that stuff shifts accordingly. We can argue about it being too slow. Like the same thing's gonna happen with JK Dobbins. Like JT Dobbins should be a yeah. late fourth round pick right now. It's gonna take about seven or eight more days, but he'll get there. But like my overall point was that if you can have conviction, and this is something I early on in the offseason, I was more tethered to ADP and didn't have quite as much conviction in some of my player takes. And now though, it does really seem like that is where you get the edge of where you are able to focus on that late season projection and these profiles that actually have the chance to cut through the noise of the current news cycle and median season long projections. Like, is that where you feel and obviously structure, which we feel strongly about as well. But to me that the, betting on those profiles and kind of sifting through that noise is really where the edge is right now. Yeah. And it, it's especially strange. I think when 2022 has had this sort of global shift otherwise in terms of focusing, I mean, I would argue occasionally to the detriment of drafters, certainly and you know we'll probably talk about this later, but focusing so much on week 16 and 17 that you build teams that just over the course of the season, your playoff advance rate, regardless of if you're in a redraft type of format or a best ball type of format, is going to be dramatically lower than if you didn't have that in mind. There are some elements of focusing on week 16 and week 17 that can give you a huge advantage. And so obviously you want to take those and and kind of walking that tightrope is tricky, 
But the part that's not tricky is the fact that at the same time that we're doing that, to be in this news environment where small developments in practice, and not even the developments, but how, how they're reported on, yeah. move prices so much. I mean, the thing that you know we've been talking about for years now is that if there's one thing you can do to make yourself better at fantasy football, it's to try and wipe from your mind week one workloads. Yeah. And yet now it's driving prices even more. And so if you can somehow force yourself to not do that within this news environment, I think you get, number one, you get even better prices, but then you're going to be on some, you know, overall types of teams that not many other people are on. And, you know, if we're talking about uniqueness and how important that is, like uh, there are just so many different advantages, right? Because number one, you're building a better team. Number two, you're building a team that a lot of other people aren't building. And so following the news is, is a real adventure because you, there are things that happen in practice that you do want to know when you do want to factor into how you're thinking about players, but it's important that it's not just week one or week two. And that's one of the things that has been fun about doing these drafts with Ben is that he is you know, very willing to go after these guys that we like and, you know, not worry about, you know, what came out yesterday about Traylon Burks, you know, we, we still take him and, you know, I think our teams are going to be better for that. Yeah, I mean, maybe I we, we still take Traylon Burks. Yes. Oh, yeah. Well, that's, I was thinking, I had that thought the other day too. And I was thinking about it. it's like, even if you concede that there are some actionable nuggets within these training camp, preseason nuggets, all of this stuff, even if you concede that, those are most actionable for the first few weeks of the season, right? Like, even that information, if it's gold, it's gold for the beginning of the season, where the team's intentions start out, how they want to deploy those guys initially. It doesn't factor in the chaos of the season, the type of profiles that normally blow up down the stretch where we're all trying to optimize for. Like, you can push it out beyond week 17. You can push it out beyond yeah. weeks 15 through 70. You can even push it out to week 10. But still, I care way more about week 10 and on than I do week one. And that's like where it really hits you how much noise there is, where it's like, even if you're right, you're right for the first half of the season, most likely. How, I mean, yes, there's momentum and inertia, and maybe guys hold roles throughout the whole season, but it's not the the information that's actually helping us win leagues. I, I think I hear exactly what you're saying. I think that's a good point. I also think this is really in here from the perspective of all the changes I was talking about earlier and the whole offseason. So, some of the news I'm, I'm really interested in because we just have such unsettled teams and we have kind of no idea what these teams are going to how they're going to look. And it's like, okay, if we get any kind of a more actionable guess or better guess or something, but it is tough. Cause Sean, you've been saying on a lot of our shows, like it seems like every player in the league is the best player on his team right now. And so it's just. Everything Although, except so, for Ronald Jones, except for Ronald Jones. <laughs> there's actually been some uh, undercover bullish stuff on Ronald Jones, but the people won't report it. Ian Hart has had a good tweet today showing, showing that there's a video of Ronald Jones doing well in pass pro and it had like five views. And there's a video of Pacheco crushing pass pro and had like a hundred thousand. Yeah. Same you because you shared this same same camera angle, same <laughs> same tweet person tweeted both, right? And, yeah, and the same, Pacheco one went viral. Retweeted by the same account. Like is all yeah. yeah, one goes viral, one's like no one wants to see it. But I, I did want to bring up break room here. Brought up oh yeah, show this. This is funny first. It's the yeah, same so... camera. <laughs> The same one here, Ronald Jones, 6K views. 
CEH 10K views, Isaiah Pacheco 117,000 views. <laughs> that's incredible. But that uh, is like the larger, I feel like that's a microcosm of the larger news environment right now where there's some stuff I really do feel like is going under the radar. Rake Room bringing up Eno Benjamin, who I feel like is a perfect kind of confluence of everything, right? It's a profile that Rotoviz identified before he played an NFL snap and has been betting on this entire time. The news is saying he's actually the number two guy, and but it hasn't broken through. Daryl no. Williams is still going ahead of Eno Benjamin. Uh, and let's hope why? that it doesn't no one knows. Well, that report was also in a reply to someone too. That tweet that I shared with you, like that wasn't like fully even getting blasted everywhere. Has Roto World run with that yet? I'm not sure. We might need to. I might need to dig around. I'm on shift tomorrow. I might need to dig around and blow up the, you know, it, it, get your know in tonight, guys, because yeah. I might blow it up tomorrow. Um, but I mean, well, there, there is I mean, like the that. thing too with there with, with Rojo, though, is he's like, I don't know why we're doing this drill. When it's in the game, I'm going to pick up the wrong guy. So. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <Yeah. laughs> Shot just comes like on here and just body bags all Rojo. of our favorite players. That's that's what this he is. Owns Rojo he, he knows what's, what's happening here. <laughs> We're trying to get Rojo in round 16 by the end of the month. Sean, do you have any uh, Cardinals intel? I feel like Cardinals are a pretty underreported team. They're like, um, like you know, almost kind of like a, like a state-run government, the Cardinals. They don't have any, uh, like, independent reporters, I feel like. They, the number one beat writer, I think, works, like, for the team. Uh, so it does. they don't feel like they have this robust uh, independent news organization in, in the area. What's going on? Yeah, I don't know, but... As you mentioned, and as the listeners are mentioning with Eno, I draft him in round 17 or 18 every draft. And Ben and I were doing a draft at one point where we couldn't decide on a player. And so just like, you have to draft Eno in every draft. We'll just take him in round 16 this time. And every draft, Daryl Williams has been like three rounds earlier. And so every day I go and look and, and try and figure out, it's like, did something change in the last day? Is it a situation where Eno is not the clear-cut backup with coaches and teammates saying that he actually looks like he could be the starter? And I mean, you think about James Conner. He's a really cool guy, right? He's a high-value touch star. He is a good receiver. Nobody makes one-hand catches like him at the running back position. He's got a great nose for the goal line. He's been this guy who can have the really high rush EP, receive EP levels, I think he's undervalued in drafts. He and won yet, his money last year. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah, huge. So we love him, right? But <laughs> I mean, if you're going to go watch them practice side by side, I mean, and the team is watching it, you know, Benjamin is through the line and 25 yards down the field, while James Conner is still like, you know, two yards, and I'm still going to be fine. That's what I'm going for. Have right? you been going <laughs> to practices, Sean? Are you an Arizona beat writer? Boots on the ground. <laughs> If Sean had a pen name and he writes for some paper called like the Arizona Gazette and covers the team, like that wouldn't surprise me at all. That would it actually, given <laughs> Sean's reaction, I'm now convinced that is what's going on. <laughs> you're gonna have to convince me you're not at Cardinals Wait, Canada now, Sean. Pull that tweet back up. Is that is yeah. that a real person or is that how Sean's been on Twitter? Wait a all this second. <laughs> is Blake Allen Murphy actually Sean Siegel? <laughs> Zoom in on the picture. Oh yeah, this yeah. Is, you this isn't even a this is a caricature artist. You it is, a yeah, that's a it got a caricature artist page. <laughs> yeah. like All right, Sean, just uncovered something here. 
We're on to you. We're on to you. Also, <laughs> I don't even know if this guy has credentials either, and we're taking his tweet as gospel. So there's that. But seriously, Sean, where are you getting this intel on watching Eno run to daylight at practice? No, I just they. It's his dream. I'm not sure which it's, one it it's, is. It's sometime between midnight. And I felt 3 like a dodge, Sean. <laughs> I felt like a little bit of a dodge. <laughs> Every article about Eno Benjamin features <laughs> reference to the angry touchdown run. And I don't know. I'm, I'm just going back to last season, how good he looked, how good Chase Edmonds looked. And I mean, you never hope that anybody gets hurt. And it was, it was very unfortunate because Edmonds was having a good year. Hopefully he'll have a good year with the Dolphins. But, you know, you watch the first half of the season and you're like, there's just no way that Connor actually fights into this because <laughs> – the difference in speed and the difference in explosiveness through the line was like the biggest gap in the entire NFL between two running backs on the same team. And so you look at that and you look at the Cardinals and how much value they create for the running back position. You, you have to have exposure. I mean, even if he falls into a situation where there is a committee with Williams, you know, something should happen to Connor. I mean, those guys are going to score points. And I do think even like looking at, I mean, James Conner was good all year and he was, you know, getting all those high value touches, but when he really started getting involved in the passing game was when Chase Edmonds went down. And I feel like we see this play out a lot of times with organizations where having that like one bell cow back isn't actually exactly what they'd want to do in a perfect world. But when push comes to shove and the personnel isn't there, they are going to rely on the guy they trust the most. But if they cut into the season with newfound trust for, you know, Benjamin, which it sounds like is there, and they bring in Darrell Williams in free agency. Like I think hoping that James Conner does just have the bell cow role he had down the stretch is, is pretty naive. And then I guess the question is how much of that is already baked into his ADP based when I'm on the clock, I'm only taking him a fraction of the time. So I feel like it's still a touch too expensive for me, but I'm with you. Like now that we continue to get this drumbeat on Eno, the price gap between them is just so massive that it's almost impossible for me to click James Conner when you can play it in that other direction. And for anyone who thinks we've done this with, you know, for so long, because we, you know, obviously we've drafted, you know, the last couple of years. And, and that's, I think one of the biggest pushbacks is like, well, we've already been burned on, you know, multiple times. I mean, he was a 21 year old rookie. He's only 23. Now it's like, you know, Rashad White's 23 and he was a seventh round pick who has made it through now three off seasons. Made it, you know, he made the team his first year, made it through a second offseason, made it through another offseason as part of the organization. They never cut him. Not all seventh round picks, I mean, not all fifth round picks make it make it to their third season on the same roster. That in and of itself, I mean, he did have the big draft day fall. We all, a lot of us a couple of years ago were expecting him to go a lot higher, hoping he'd go, you know, maybe even day two. He falls all the way to round seven, but was a player, you know, prospect wise, everyone liked. But when you're a seventh round pick and you're you know you're sticking for three years, I think that is relevant enough in itself. Well, and this is all puff piece stuff too. But you listen to his teammates and you hear them say things about how hard a worker he is. And for you know all of the drafters who've been burned by Rojo and the pass protection stuff, whether it's relevant or not, one of the things that they've said about Benjamin is that he's continued to work and gotten better, and he could not pass block before. He can now. One of the things about him is he's a good receiver. And so if he can be out there on those types of snaps, I mean, you have three down upside again in an offense that just creates so many points for running backs. And I took the Daryl Williams signing 
as an indication that they do want a passing down back. And we've now gotten, you know, reports and stuff um, that, that Eno is in that role, but I actually, and maybe this is just, uh, you know, kind of confirmation bias or whatever, but like, I have took that as, as kind of a positive sign for Eno or, or a negative sign for Connor. Really. I, I stopped really kind of drafting Connor after they signed Daryl. Cause it's like, okay, if, if his only path is touchdowns, then he's just overpriced. He had a ton of touchdowns last year. That's why his ADP is where it is. Uh, if he's losing that passing down work to either Eno or Daryl, that's a big problem. Um, and now that the reports are that it's Eno, I feel like, you know, they've sort of signaled that they have that role in mind. So there could be some standalone value there. Let's uh, let's talk about another team that's near and dear to Sean's heart. And I do feel like the ultimate kind of riddle to this season, I, I'm starting to write an intro for tomorrow's newsletter about the Chiefs and outside of Kelsey, how if you could, and we talk about this with Davis Maddock of the hypothetical, if you could know the stat line of one player for the entire 2022 season, which player would you pick based on what would you be able to do with that information across other players? And I do feel like that player would have to be a Kansas City Chief. And I think you could argue for it to be Juju. I think you could argue for it to be CEH. But just looking at those rooms, I mean, you can make the case for four wide receivers and four running backs to like lead that position group on their team. Like after Kelsey, it's so wide open. So I'm just curious, Sean, right now, is this a, a chief in every draft kind of situation? Are there price points you like better? How are, how are you thinking about this team that I was just asking Leone in our chat? I mean, when you add up their implied team totals for the entire season, they have the third highest implied team total of all the teams. I think it's the Bills and I forget who the other, the other team is, but it's like we know points are coming here. We just have no clue where they're coming from. Yeah, I just had an article come out today talking about evolving QB ADPs on underdog and how, and just some, you know, at least mildly exploitable elements to that and how surprising it is to me that the ADPs of the Chiefs receivers are rising and Patrick Mahomes continues to fall. And so there's, you know, some value there for drafters. I, I would pick Juju in part because, I mean, he's the only guy I really have a lot of question about. And I think that that, will determine everything else for them. Juju and whether or not he is washed determines whether or not Patrick Mahomes finishes as the QB one or like the QB five, because Travis Kelsey is going to be a star, probably not to the same level, but he's a star. Sky Moore is going to have a breakout season, whether that happens in week one or in week 10, he's going to be a dynamic player for them. MVS is going to be a good complementary vertical threat. He's going to have a handful of long touchdowns. And in those weeks, people who have him in best ball are going to be, you know, just ecstatic. They're going to figure out what to do at the running back position. I mean, that's the biggest storyline with what's happening in practice is that between those kind of four guys who were in the mix, they're going to be able to get something done, right? If Juju is, you know, even anywhere in the vicinity, of what he was like pre-injury. And obviously they've been raving about what he can do and how and he's excited because he's being used in all of these different formations and situations that he wasn't in Pittsburgh the last couple of years, all that kind of thing. If he's anything close to the guy he was before, then the Chiefs will score the most points in the NFL. They will get the number one seed in the AFC. They will distance themselves from this loaded AFC West. If he's just a guy, it's going to be a battle all the way to the end. 
Where are you at on Pacheco as a prospect? Because um, he's a guy where it's like, if you really dig in, and some of the stuff that I like to look at, um, like you know his breakaway percentage uh, sucked. He just not didn't really have any kind of explosive long plays in college. CRs per route run, very bad. Uh, actually, much worse than than Rojo's was in college. Kind of like a Ken, Kenneth Walker level uh, yards per route run. Wasn't particularly elusive. Did, you know, he didn't have a ton of work. He's like a committee guy, but even on a per touch basis, was not impressive in terms of breaking tackles, yards after contact. So kind of like every kind of micro thing I look at, he bombs in. But he's seems like he's going to be the starting kick returner for the Chiefs, which means he'll be active on game days. And he's got sufficient size at 216, and he ran a sub 440. So from kind of like just like zoom out a little bit, he's pretty interesting. But I did you have any thoughts on him just in terms of the prospect profile? Yeah, I mean, it's terrible, right? I mean, there's a reason that someone with that size, speed, profile gets drafted where he got drafted. Now, maybe there are some contextual things. You know, he wasn't playing for Alabama. So, you know, maybe there's a, a mild explanation there. And one of the things that we see when we go and look at later round picks and you, know, you can look at it from a dynasty perspective or a redraft perspective, what have you, the guys who stick around and emerge are players who were wildly productive. And for whatever reason, the NFL didn't believe that was going to translate or they were players who were freakishly athletic. And it's, it's skewed in favor of the producers over the athletes, but there is at least a little bit of potential there. I mean, even if there is some context to it not being a great situation in college, I mean, his numbers were just devastatingly poor, right? And, and I think that you always have to look at the ability of a player to make big plays. If you can't do it in college, it's going to be difficult at the NFL level. That was one of the things that I really tried to argue about David Montgomery is that yes, you have these really high broken tackle numbers, but if you cannot translate into yardage at the college level, I mean, these NFL guys are just so much better. Now, if, if you Pacheco turns into David Montgomery, obviously you're very, very happy, but there's a, a difference in expectations based on, on where those guys go. And so we just, I think have to keep in context, the fact that, I mean, he should be going at the end of drafts. You should get some exposure to him because if you have a sub four, four guy in Kansas city's offense, you can't, not and yeah. yet i mean if the main storyline from all of this is it makes rojo cheaper then that's a benefit to everybody <laughs> where where are you where are you looking for rojo because i i was taking rojo a ton okay and then he falls i was taking him in the 11th round you were falls in the breaking news we need a breaking news uh we need a chiron here pat took ronald jones in a draft uh it's taking him a lot in the 11th then I was like, you know what? I'm gonna wait. He's gonna have to follow the 12th. I've got an. I've got my bags packed already. I want. I want my discount. He's he's falling to 12th now. He's falling to like the 13th. I'm kind of wait now. I'm kind of at the point where I'm like, let me see if I can get him in the late 13th. That that'd be kind of fun. Oh, I've got so, him at pick 160 on underdog. Yeah, I, I mean, take him if he's a pick 150. I pull the trigger. I don't. I don't screw around anymore. So, <laughs> but maybe. But I am kind of getting to the point where I'm like, maybe 150 is not enough. Maybe I need to push it a little further. So, I. I where is that point for you, Sean, where you're like, okay, now I'm not, I'm not asking for any more discount. I'm taking Rojo. Well, Ben and I boxed ourselves in a little bit from a structural perspective at the end of our draft last night, but I believe we passed on him in the 14th round for Jarvis Landry. 
and <laughs> Ben Jarvis Landry. It was the other way around, wasn't it? <laughs> I, I was drinking a margarita, but I'm pretty sure I wanted Rojo, and I was like, "We can't take Jarvis Landry." Over. Sean was like, "No, we're taking Jarvis Landry." Wow. Yeah, because I have control of the clicker yeah. and just let the clock always run out after I ask. So I've somehow become Jarvis Landry's biggest fan on this show. I don't even know what happened. I've like twice said that he was a viable pick in like the 12th round. Bindford decided to just like start tweeting that I'm like obsessed with Jarvis Landry. Anyway, well, Pat, you had, you to, you had to bring this. that that pick up of all the picks, Sean. Uh, <laughs> FF underscore Riot B had like pulled some quotes there, just kind of shining a light on how the Pacheco stuff had gotten out a little a little out of control and curated some of these quotes. He's a tough kid. The enemy said of Pacheco, obviously we've got a lot of good players in that room right now. He's doing some good things. Rojo is doing a heck of a job. He's obviously a big man. He's done some good things running the football. The thing that I love about Rojo every single day, he comes out here and works his tail off. Um, so Pat, what, what was the meaning of this retweet confirming your priors? Yeah, I was happy to see someone out there confirming my priors and uh, th- <laughs> thought they deserved uh, more eyeballs on their work. You know, that's how retweets <laughs> work. That's what Twitter's for. But that's right. the thing I, I want to get uh, Sean's thoughts on with the Roger stuff, like the reason for that is not so much all this camp hype. And Pacheco's getting like some really big camp hype. It, it's like a legit, uh, legit hype train on Pacheco. But the kick returner stuff is the stuff that concerns me. Because I also, by the way, I have a, a lot of Jarek McKinnon. So are they carrying four running backs into the season? Are they – they're going to, I assume, healthy scratch one, even if they do. So, like, I don't know, Sean, are you like, does this kick returner stuff bother you the same way it bothers me? Because that has me concerned that Pacheco is not only making the roster, he's active on game days. Yeah, I, I have a decent amount of McKinnon, but probably in formats where it's not going to hurt me if it doesn't work out there. I do think he was so good at the end of last season. One of the things that the Chiefs, are able to do now. And it's nice to be able to balance out a few of the weird moves that they've made uh, with trading for players who they were going to then have to pay a lot of money, which you don't really want to do structurally building your team, but they've been able to add a lot of interesting, talented players for very little. And once you've done that, I don't know why you would turn around necessarily and cut them, but yeah, the, the great thing about Rojo now especially in redraft. It's a little bit trickier in best ball because it just is so crucial. If you want to maximize your playoff advance rates among or across a very large number of teams, you just don't want to be burning those roster spots, right? You just get so few, you can't burn them. But in redraft, I mean, you have to buy Rojo in every league because <laughs> his price right now is fine if he gets cut, right? Fine if he gets cut and you still have a ton of upside. So, I mean, he's going to be. Oh. What, um, what a cliffhanger. No, no. He, what? No, that no, was no. That was a big moment. That was a big moment. Was there breaking news on the Cardinals beat front and Sean had <laughs> yeah. to uh, kill his speed? <laughs> I'm legitimately heartbroken. Pat is literally bulky. just rock hard right now under his back. <laughs> he's going to be what? <laughs> <laughs> can't they yeah, have you, can't they have four active on game day uh, i guess they could but isn't that's if not the all that are, like the kick return Sean, yeah, like you need to finish that sentence he's gonna be sorry we're having a thunderstorm here so i'm 
No, it's good. You it's love- just you said Ronald Jones is gonna be, and we were all waiting with bated breath. Well, I saw you guys' expressions as I was sure I was losing you. And so I thought it was probably because I'm frozen. Uh, I mean, he's the most talented player on this team, right? He's going to be the guy. On the whole the team? guy. Wow. Well, among the running backs. Among the running backs. <laughs> yes. the Sean Siegel thinks Ronald Jones is more talented than Patrick Mahomes. <laughs> the person who's threatened by this is, is Edward Zolaire. And so it's a little bit weird that his ADP is not crumbling because we now have just so much evidence that he's just not going to be able to get the workload that he would need to justify where he goes in drafts. The, the funniest thing about the Pacheco news is what Sean just said is that CH is now going higher because everybody <laughs> you were saw kidding. the flash, saw the lightning wow. in the background. Wow. Everybody is so uh, – like this is gonna sound like it's you know getting a little defensive uh, on this particular <laughs> program, but anti Rojo that everyone has read the Pacheco stuff as anti Rojo, and then people took it the next step and they said, actually, the way that I see the Pacheco stuff is it's actually good for Ceh because I thought Rojo was the only real competition for Ceh, but since the Pacheco stuff is anti Rojo, what it really means is that Ceh locked in. We get some booms out there, dude. And this so Ronald. you get this this weird thing where because another running back is looking good behind CEH, people have talked themselves into CEH being a better pick to take even higher simply so that they could be completely out on Rojo and drop him like four rounds. Like how does how does Pacheco doing well well help I, you know I completely agree with you, Ben. I think it because they both fit into two archetypes. One, like there's already a pre-existing like disposition to dislike Rojo. Everyone loves saying, oh, he messed up. He couldn't earn Tom Brady's trust. He couldn't, you know, climb that depth chart there. And then rookies, we all collectively love rookies. We all want to envision the 99th percentile outcome. So you get, you know, both of those things in conjunction. And it's like a lightning rod pushing them in opposite directions. And I can totally, and it even on underdog, like Pacheco's ADP hasn't even risen like that much. It's just Rojo's is sinking. Yeah. It's like everyone's quickest to react relative to Rojo and yeah. not the other stuff. Right. Well, this is, I, I mean, this is not a new dynamic, guys. This is why I've continually doubled down on Rojo's because <laughs> every year I'm like, Rojo should be in the 10th round. Then he's in the 12th round. And I'm like, oh, yeah. well, Chet, that's Chet. a discount. And then he'll fall to the 13th by the end by the end of the draft season. And I've got an insane bag. The chat has some really interesting thoughts on, on Sean's thunderstorm. We got God's trying to smite you for the bullish Rojo takes. God's angry that you're using your ability to see the future so openly. God's trying to silence you from giving up the secrets behind the KC backfield. Pete just pulled up the one that says Mother Nature. Obviously mad. She didn't get to pack her bags on Rojo before you broke the Pacheco spell on everyone. It is interestingly timed after after what you were doing. Right as you were building up to the Rojo take, you froze. And now we've got lightning and thunder in the background that you reconnected. <laughs> There's a lot yeah. happening here. The fantasy gods are not happy with it. Well, one of the other kind of funny things, too, about that quote there that you read, I think that's like the next sentence, is that, the chief's coaching staff is saying, we're going to teach him how to do things that he hasn't done yet. It's like, I mean, how much more of a clear shot at the Buccaneers can, can you make right there? Wow. Uh, speaking of, of things he hasn't done yet, Ronald Jones has a 
yards per route run over his career of 1.10. This is something, by the way, I mentioned on our mini so that just released. Uh, check those out if you guys haven't. But uh, I, I, I cracked you guys up with this uh, stat when we were debating a Chiefs running back on the clock of the FFPC. But Ronald Jones, 1.10 yards per route run over the course of his career. It's actually a little worse than that over the last two years, 0.81 and 0.70. You do not want running backs below one yards per hour. And that's bad, right? And 1.10 career, still pretty bad. How about Clyde Edwards-Alaire, the passing down back from LSU? How's he doing? Is he, is he a good pass catcher in the pros? 0.98 as a rookie, fell to 0.73 last year. <laughs> career yards per run of 0.89, <laughs> significantly below Rojo. Rojo. What are we doing? Receiving. It's it's unreal. It's all right. It makes me. Uh, I want. I do think we have had in our main event drafts. I believe we have been doing. You know, a chief in in every draft, basically strategy. This was from our uh, second slow main we did that with the I'm on the boat uh, with Lou and Frankie in Serum here. But you know, this, this all this Chiefs talk is going to be excited because in this one we did take Juju there. In the late fifth, we went with Sky there, playing it in both directions. And then I don't think we ended up getting Rojo in this one, but we did still get uh, McKinnon. Pat, I think it's weird. In our first two drafts, we have McKinnon and not Rojo. Uh, We're over we three on Rojo. We almost took him in, in one, and we he ended up getting one Rondale. pick ahead of us. Yeah, and he almost came back really cheap in the, our most recent one. Which right. Well, I think we played board. it right yeah. because we're going to now we get him cheap. <laughs> we're going to get him cheap. We did play it Going right. Forward. Yeah, we get him cheap now, yeah. Um, Sean, have you done any main event drafts yet? Are you, you saving them for closer to the season? Obviously. And I should mention now the four of us are drafting a main event team here live on ship chasing a week from tomorrow. So that'll be Thursday, the 18th, I believe we'll also be doing a main event draft, uh, next Wednesday and basically main event drafts, uh, from here until the start of the season, I'll pull up the schedule here, but, uh, Sean, do you have, uh, any main events under your belt yet? I think I'm breaking up, but I don't. And then obviously Ben and I will do a lot for Ceiling Banana. We'll have some for OT. Do we know our draft slot draft yet? We do. We got those. Let me double check my email here to see what we got. Do you, do you guys remember what we were for ours I, here? I don't remember. I don't. We had a bunch of top five. Yeah, let's see here what we are. We got some good picks this year, yeah. Yeah. I don't we this. are for chasing stolen. We have the five slot, fellas. Yes. Oh, yes. Slot. Yes. Yeah. So, how, Sean, is that what is your favorite draft slot on FFPC this year? If it, you could just hand pick it, I would probably go with that, right because you're going to get the. I mean, you're going to get the last of that tier to start the for and a little bit earlier in round two, you perhaps get the best value falling coming back. You still get an early pick in round three. So much you can do with having picks in the middle too. The middle gives you a lot more flexibility than being on the edges. I mean, I really enjoy being at the turn and being able to get two guys in a row and sometimes taking, I mean, I like to think of this as two surprising players. They may not actually be surprising players, but I like being at the turns, but the tactical advantage of being in the middle is pretty significant. Yeah. 
Sean uh, freezing there again, but I, I feel that so much just in general on, on basically any sites I played this year. Like I having that middle slot is just, it seems ideal. But for, you want, for multiple reasons. you want the five, you don't want the middle slot at six or seven. I mean, no. you're fine with it. If chase falls to six or seven, but you want five. I mean, I, I think that's exactly right. Five is a beautiful place to be. It, it is a beautiful place to be. Cause it, to me, there's like all these tear breaks that occur throughout the draft and you're catching at five, you're catching the last of the first tier break. And then there's still plenty of the, basically from that point through probably the mid third is the same rough tier. And you're getting two guys from that tier. And then there's a tier break shortly after your pick at three Oh five, but that tier lasts until you're picking the fourth. And there's kind of one after that in the, like, sometimes you might get a, a value in the fourth. You might get a waddle falling or somebody, you know? Right. You yeah. might get a waddle. Yeah. yeah. And then like it can, the fifth, I feel like there's a, a tier that breaks sort of late in the fifth or maybe early in the sixth. You don't have to worry about that. You got your fifth round guy already. So like, I guess by the six, seven, it starts to get a little gross, but you've already had five picks and you've yeah. gotten the best, the best of the tiers. I feel like each time. Yeah, I just pulled up. This was our first slow main event draft. So if you guys were VIPs and listening to those mini-sodes or uh, you guys have been getting the audio versions of those trickling out, this was this team that did start from the 105 and that same thing. You grabbed the Pitts, uh, the Chase-Pitts combo there, Higgins, you know, sliding there. Brown seemed about appropriately valued. The one snipe was, uh, you guys heard us talking about, we did really want Gabriel Davis there after talking that out over Bateman. But I do agree. It seemed like we hit the sweet spots of this a lot. And then like Singletary, we were doing cartwheels for at this spot. And then in this zero RB build, like Carter and Gainwell, who Sean has since gone on to uh, write some glowing things about as potential zero RB targets. I mean, this draft fell really nice for us. Yes, Um, I made you guys take James White in the 18th round. That's going to pay it out. Don't worry. <laughs> this this would have been so good for your brand, Ben, if you had your Ty Montgomery conviction. Yeah, I, just, yeah. Ty Montgomery, yeah. I was I, I was at one point talking about taking both White and Montgomery in this draft. It didn't it didn't pan out, and then I was like, we got to take White over Montgomery, right? And, and we should have just taken Montgomery. Yeah, because yeah. White's going to start on PUP. Montgomery's going to be sweet for like six or eight weeks. White's going to come back and be good the rest of the way. You can't have White though. I mean, you just can't hold them through that. I don't think. No. Um, Sean, if your internet can hold up for it, I'd love to ask you about quarterbacks this year because we found ourselves in some interesting spots in these this drafts. Being one of them. This being this being one of them. This was one of the most interesting spots you could have. I'm curious. How are you feeling about the quarterback landscape? Um, how willing are you to kind of push past this mid elite tier after Herbert and Allen go off the board and kind of go down to the Wilson, Lance, Burrow, Dak, Brady? I'm just kind of curious overall because there is specific ADP context that that make it interesting in drafts for decision points. It does. And I think that we are moving into an environment as tournaments get bigger and as the relationship between quarterback scoring and quarterback ADP gets a little bit stronger that you obviously have to consider those star quarterbacks. And yet I I do like the in-between tier and I, and this isn't unique at all, but I really like Jalen Hurts and Trey Lance because there are multiple ways that you can win with those guys. And if all they do is run, and their offenses are solid, you're going to come out ahead. 
if either one of them ends up being anything like Deshaun Watson, then you absolutely destroy the league. And that part of it is, is huge for you. And then if we're you know looking at some different opportunities to put guys with them, you do have this possibility of playing a Brandon Ayuk or a Devontae Smith, and they're inexpensive enough that they're not among your four starting wide receivers with either a stealing bananas or a ship chasing build. But if they do hit, then you can win in such a big way and you can win in a big way. That's not overwhelmingly expensive. The other element of it would simply be that there are going to be some dead spots as you go through your drafts early on. And there are some fun rookie wide receiver prices so that if you get caught in a spot in round five and six and you don't have anybody there that you like, I mean, that's a great spot to get some Lamar Jackson, to get some Kyler Murray. Maybe if Patrick Mahomes has really fallen to get some Mahomes, I always like to take quarterbacks, elite quarterbacks, when I don't have any separation at running back or wide receiver on my board. One thing that I feel like makes it a little trickier and I might be misremembering, but it felt like last year that tear break there was way more obvious and pronounced of like wide receiver is decimated right now. Like Deshaun Watson at the time, or those guys really felt like the best possible picks. Like didn't even feel like there was an opportunity cost this year, specifically with the rookies, Burks, London, uh, Garrett Wilson, especially sky, all of them feel mispriced by about a round. And so you're often asking yourself, do I try to play the ADP game, grab the quarterback here, see if that guy falls, or am I going to reach for that wide receiver ahead of ADP? And that's why it hasn't felt as clean to me this year um, as it maybe has in years past. Yeah, the round five at wide receiver, I think, is actually in many ways more interesting than round three and round four. It doesn't necessarily mean those guys are going to outscore them, but I, I find myself much more drawn to wanting a lot of exposure to those receivers. But then the good thing is that in redraft, as opposed to best ball, you do see those big time quarterbacks in round six. And so if you you know have the guy in round five, you don't have anybody in round six, you could take the shot there. Yeah. Yeah, that's where we got Murray. <laughs> you say it's not as clean, but we have uh, three main event drafts in and three shares of Kyler Murray. So <laughs> there's there seems to be a plan. Yeah, but that's, we've also gotten funneled there for different reasons, whether it was stacking. I'm just saying there was always a spot there where there was an attractive wide receiver if we wanted to take them. Because I do I do think guys like Burks and Garrett Wilson are like mispriced by two rounds, you know? like, uh, And so that's where I, I struggle with it. It's like if I just had put together my big board, I would probably push it. I think the dynamic that is really interesting is if you do push it past that Kyler tier and even now it hurts who's kind of up there now – to the Lance, Dak, and sometimes Burrow, it feels like you're playing with fire a little bit, especially if you're on the ends of drafts, right? And you could miss out on a run, and you're like, I passed on Kyler because I thought I'd just play the ADP game, and then the board gets wiped out. Like, are you willing to play chicken with Trey Lance? Is Derek Carr kind of your backstop if, if you miss a guy like that? Well, we – not to steal the no, question, hopefully. Sean, but last night when we were doing the um, underdog draft, we, we were joking about how we took Kelsey and then – um, Pitts made it back. We we had a similar quarterback dis decision. As I mean, I think this is a huge 
question. And and we took the earlier QB, and then Lance went like seven on one in this underdog draft. And it was like, well, kind of glad we did take the QB here because we like not sure what we would have done. But anyway, go ahead and answer your question. I always like to risk it because I am always trying to build in the main events these super teams. And yeah, it's a big risk because I don't think that the Prescott or Stafford are playable either. I think that if you miss on the guys right before them, then you actually want to go way down and start taking potential breakout players. It's, it's not that every year is going to have a breakout player. I don't know that there's a particularly good late breakout option. I, I do think that, I mean, you Zach Wilson doesn't seem like an NFL starter, but he's got those two receivers. If you're high on them, maybe you have a little bit of interest. If you think that Marcus Mariota could make it through him to me is a guy who could score like players in the seventh round. But again, that's a thin kind of thesis because he's not going to make it through. And so you're going to need some other things. I mean, the, the redraft part of it is good because you can let your team evolve throughout the course of the year. Whereas in best ball, I mean, you're really stuck with those picks. If you make them at the same time, it's going to be very hard to get that QB scoring back. And again, as these tournaments get bigger and you're playing for the $1 million, you're going to need some quarterback points. I'm just and impressed I, you didn't bring up Mac Jones and Jared Goff there and chose some other later on quarterback stealing bananas listeners who are watching are also going, what, who's Marcus Mariota or Zach Wilson? These are not the late round QBs that you mentioned every episode. You like to balance it out. I mean, I, I had that spot in, this was my pros versus Joe's draft. And there was a huge quarterback run here in the six. And this was one of those spots again, where sometimes I might be tempted to take Trey Lance here in the seventh and not risk it. But, and then I'm sitting here and staring at Drake London and to Sean's point, it's like, can I build a super team, push it, to the eighth, then get Lance. And then like Sean was mentioning earlier, then Brandon Ayuk is still kicking around here in the ninth. So you get your stack and you can build that out. And that's where this spot here, when these runs happen, it can feel a little scary. But if you have those targets that Sean's talking about, you're more willing to be able to, to risk it. That's a really good fucking deep. <laughs> Uh, this this one had our Chiefs guys we were talking about that we got the yeah. Kelsey the uh, yep. the Juju and in the Rojo here although people are getting Rojo much cheaper Kelsey now. Swift DJ I mean that's it and then the, the Lance Uke in the middle you get Rojo you get Daryl Henderson pretty good Wandale late even got Visca on there rolled a clip yeah we're we're playing the hits here playing the hits for sure I think but I yeah got I don't know on mine as well um, I don't. Yeah, we had similar builds, Pat, right? Because you had, had who did you start? Builds. Kelsey Barkley? Maybe Aaron Jones. Oh, uh, Kelsey Aaron Jones. Yeah. It might have been it. But yeah, we ended up with pretty similar teams. I wanted yeah. to ask you about um, Justin Fields, Sean, because we did a dynasty startup together recently and we're kind of going back and forth. And I was the Fields bear there because I'm just nervous about this situation around him, the offensive line. <laughs> is atrocious uh the you know the second round pick they had last year tevin jenkins people are were like kind of like surprised to hear they were considering trading him dude hasn't seen like a first team rep all, all offseason like who cares if they trade him and then there was a, a beat writer today i was like snarkily tweeting about uh who was saying oh man what a sweet throw justin fields just had to isaiah coulter <laughs> you know be sweeter than that throw not having Isaiah Coulter on their team. <laughs> <laughs> like, what are we doing, Bears? So, but on the other hand, some of the some of the offensive line stuff maybe is 
good because he's going to scramble more. Like he's not good, but maybe you know we get some fancy points out of it. So uh, you know, at, at a certain point, at bad, you'd rather have it just be that little extra worse, so he's running around more. But I don't know. Where, is he part of that backstop plan for you at all? Well, I have a ton of him. I, in some ways, I do like him a little bit more in best ball, where you're not going to have to roll him out every week knowing that he's your starter. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that there's a, a weak version of my case for DeAndre Swift and TJ Hawkinson last year where you combine the talent with the garbage time. And I actually do struggle to see how he doesn't score a lot of points, right? He's got the big, accurate arm. The question is the offense, the talent around him, his decision-making, his information processing. I mean, that's where he has to grow into a legitimate NFL quarterback, right? But he can make these big-time throws. He rushed more last year than people realize, I think. And that's with an offense where they were specifically trying to keep him from running. And so we don't expect him to be Trey Lance. We don't expect him to be Lamar Jackson. And yet the rushing upside there, I mean, they're going to get him out on the edge and I mean, he's just going to run because there's nobody to throw to. And so there are a lot of potential fantasy points there. My only concern with the Bears would be if they just flat out don't try in the fourth quarter. And one of the good things about the Lions last year and the thing that did help Swift and Hawkinson, at least to an extent, was that that team competed. And so if you think that the Bears, as terrible as they are, and... In my article today, I said, I mean, they obviously have the 32nd ranked skill position group. And I mean, if there were 100 teams, it would be 100th. But yet, I mean, if they do try in the fourth quarter, I mean, how do they not score points? And how does he not score points? I think there are worse options. And so he's the person I'm targeting when I target other people and miss. And yet, when you're trying to win the overall tournament in the main event, I do see, uh, I mean, that part of it seems a little bit difficult for me. I, I'm also a little concerned. They hired a, you know, they hired a defensive co- co- head coach, defensive coordinator, to be their head coach. Their OC, very limited offensive coordinator background. He was uh, the passing game coordinator for the Packers the last two years. Obviously, the Packer, you know, Aaron Rodgers wins MVP back to back seasons. But how much of that was Aaron Rodgers? How much of that was Luke Getzey? How much of that, even if it was Luke Getzey, can he bring over to this Chicago Bears team and Justin Fields? That part about them being competitive is where I get hung up. I love Justin Fields. I'm with you with everything else, but I'm like, this team's going to suck, and they're going to suck in a boring way. That's I'm just depressed about that. Well, when you read some of the beat reports, you don't get the impression they picked up any first downs, but yet (laughs) those people covering the team are very enthusiastic about their offensive coordinator. Despite the lack of first downs in practice, they really like the way the offense works. Okay. All right. right. Shot, you mentioned the the week 15 through 17 element with FFPC. I'm curious, any specific considerations you're making for that, Um, whether it's, you know, schedule-based, any other stuff, and and maybe also kind of comparing it to if you think about it differently than you do on Underdog with Best Ball Mania 3, and just kind of in general how you're thinking about in-game stuff and how you can set yourself up for success even drafting here in august yeah the thing that i'm always trying to do occasionally to my detriment but is a fun way to draft is to you know basically essentially or exclusively i'm sorry exclusively target players that you expect to be three rounds more expensive next year and if that takes a little bit of time at the beginning of the season to manifest itself or for those guys to get in that position, then you're okay with it. And so at the midpoint of the season, 
if not all of your teams are in first place, that's okay. But as you're going then from say week seven or eight to week 14, those teams have to be ascending and they have to be peaking for the fantasy playoffs to where, again, we talk with zero RB about you know, trying to get six of the top 15 wide receivers, because that gives you so much firepower to dominate the starting lineup, dominate the flex. Your zero RB guys are emerging. Your players like Kenneth Gainwell may now be the starters and not just the starters, but you know, not superstars, but big time players. And you, you think about, we talk about the, the news and the patience that you have to have. And one of the very interesting guys from last year was Rashad Penny, right? And he was the person who won us all a bunch of money in best ball and yet not on those redraft teams because everybody cut him and you yeah. know for good reason. And he's then locked. And so he can't come back in and actually play in the fantasy playoffs. But you have to have that kind of player and you have to have players who, if they're second string are potential stars. So, you know, Penny's backup right now looks like someone who, you know, is a must draft in, in every league, basically now that the ADPs have shifted and you're getting him at a, a good price. So once you're there and going into the, that 15 through 17 run, you need to be starting a super team. You, it's not so much a matter of where do I find the small edges, although you want to find those too, but you're looking for the big edges and you're looking for your team to become And like the team that won it last year, where everybody's looking at that team and saying, I mean, this is the greatest team of all time. How did they draft this team? Well, they drafted that team because they set out to draft a very, very good team as opposed to get a lot of small ADP wins and build a safe, I'm going to be in the upper third of my league type of team. I mean, they drafted a team to win the whole thing. And it's easy to say that it's harder to do it, but there are so many structural things and player profile types of things that you have to be willing to do and you can do. I mean, you have the option of making fun picks. And that's one of the things I like about it is that not only does it give you a chance to win the whole thing, but it's a much more fun way to draft. And so that's kind of what I'm thinking of when I'm looking at weeks 15 to 17 is that you need to be able to see for a large percentage of the players on your team, how they could contribute to an all-star team down the stretch, because I mean, you're going to have to beat other teams in that race that are very, very good. Yeah. I like that a lot. And I've, I've, I love that heuristic as well too, of just thinking of who are the guys that can jump, you know, majorly in ADP the next year. It also puts you on a lot of teams that, that look like dynasty teams, right? Where you have so many of these rookies and you are looking and specifically some of that zero RB target range with your James Cook and your Spiller and Rashad White. And yeah, there's other guys kicking around in that range, but you look at all those guys and it's like, if any of those guys were second or third round picks next year, would that surprise you? No. And it's hard to say that about a lot of the other non-rookies in that same range. Sean, let's talk about Rashad Wright real quick, because uh, I was on with you guys when uh, he was drafted. Uh, I know you were worried about his draft stock, but he got that crucial day two capital. And uh, I have been extremely bullish with the landing spot because Tom Brady throws to his running backs and Rashad White is a pass catcher, but obviously Leonard Fournette is there. And Leonard Fournette is like not actually as expensive as I thought he might be. Um, his price isn't really out of control. So, uh, you know, maybe I shouldn't be just betting so aggressively against him with all of my Rashad White shares, but here we are. He does look like, in a lot of ways, kind of a classic zero running back candidate. Got the contingent value, he's a pass catcher. But 
there's also maybe like not the best opportunity for him to like mix in because they've used Fournette as such a workhorse. What are, what are your thoughts on him? I think you're muted, Sean. Because the price oh. is still in that range that is a little bit tricky. And in part because I just, you know, you, you do have some emotional things that you'll go through with fantasy and you, you might as well embrace them as opposed to not. And I'm, I don't want to spend the entire season being on the opposite side of, of Leonard Fournette necessarily. <laughs> At the price range too, I mean, you think about someone like Eno Benjamin, where I'm actually pretty confident in standalone value because of the way the Buccaneers do it. I just, I'm not sure that there's any standalone value there. Now in redraft, especially as opposed to best ball, you don't need it. You just need someone who, if things change, then is a big time impact player. It's going to depend a little bit on just how thin you are through the first 10 rounds. I was excited because Ben and I got what was at least my, one of my first shares of him last night. That was a lot of fun. I do think that he has huge upside. I'm also with you there on Fournette where it's just the price is wrong. And that's very frustrating because the players I know I'm not going to draft, I'm always rooting for them to go up, go up, go up. And in my article the other day on, if you're tired of buying or paying for Najee Harris and, and uh, Joe Mixon, here are some options. Leonard Fournette is a great option. And at the end of the article, it just says, I'm not going to have any, but unless you're like, Exactly in my shoes, you should have some because he just <laughs> why a lot would of anyone draft Najee Harris over Leonard Fournette? I guess because Leonard Fournette's uh, old and, and bad, and Najee's young and bad. I have drafted <laughs> <laughs> I have drafted Leonard Fournette four separate times in Best Ball Mania. That's out of almost 100 drafts, but still. That's a lot more than I thought I would. I mean, well, he falls into the third round. It's it's pretty wild. But it goes back to that thing too, Sean, like you're also having to pass on AJ Brown and T Higgins to draft Leonard Fournette, these best ball media drafts, which is always just the hardest button to click. I've never once even considered drafting him. So I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sitting at 4% in uh best ball mania and I feel, and I'm probably like massively overweight compared to you guys. Yeah. Yeah. I have 4% as well. So okay, that's what yeah, you said. Yeah. 4%. Yeah. So yeah. I would like Leone comes on here and acts like we're just complete lunatics with our with our Leonard Fournette hate and everything. We're moderates. We're, we're the ones willing to take it. Except with David Montgomery, who I do in fact have zero percent of. Big yeah. old zero and a little bit bolder. Zero Joe Mixon. I've not taken Joe Mixon once. So Sean, for some of those other guys that you are on pretty much a full fade, like some of the guys that Pat said, I mean, where are you at on are you playing it through other backs, say the Chris Evans, P. Ryan? Is, do we have any alpha on the Steelers backup running back? Are you betting against Najee, your guy Benny Snell, still kicking around there? Do you, do you have any Galaxy Brain uh, late round running back targets here to leverage the fades? Yeah, every once in a while, I'll run across a dynasty team that still has some Benny Snell that I have to cut <laughs> for. Like it's a contract league, and you have these penalties, and so you just he's still there, and you're thinking. Well, that was an obvious miss and still is going to be regardless of what happens to Harris. The uh, the Bengals situation is interesting because I think that P. Ryan actually is a good player. I don't know that there's that big a gap even between Mixon and P. Ryan. And then Evans is interesting because he's very athletic. And the potential for a receiving role, it, it gives you a sense of, of the news and how much it affects things because he was so trendy as they talked about, okay, Joe Mixon is not going to play third downs. And as soon as you hear that, you're like, Joe Mixon is a, like a fourth round player. 
Now, a fourth round is still a very valuable player. So it's not like we're saying, you know, he's terrible or something like that. But that's where his value is if he doesn't play third downs or, or even fourth or fifth. I mean, he becomes, you know, Josh Jacobs. But oh, baby. it's a guy who has a full fade position on Joe Mixon. This is pretty great. <laughs> but with Evans, right, you have the situation where as soon as that comes out, then everybody is drafting in in the 15th round. And you can understand why. And then they come out and say, look, he's got a ways to go. It, you know, it's the quintessential Rojo quote. It's like he's got a lot to work on. And <laughs> then he drops out of the draft entirely again. The best ball part of it is tricky because, again, you just you have to be very aware of how you're conserving every pick that you have. And there are some other ways to play things that are maybe not as risky. You can maximize all of those draft picks. In redraft, though, where you actually want to take some big risks at running back because you are going to churn. You know, If you get into the situation where you actually feel like you have to keep every player on your roster, you won't be aggressive enough in the first three or four weeks of free agency. And you'll miss out on these guys who maybe they don't become league winners, but they will contribute to your team. So even just sort of psychologically, you can set yourself up into a little bit better position by taking some guys who are just pure contingent bets, not anything to where they're going to have a week one role. The Bengals are such a high scoring team, such a good offense. You should have some exposure to those players, even if the coach is saying, look, this guy is third string, especially if he's athletic, if he could catch the ball. One of the things that we've seen this season, I think, is that there are pass catchers. You talk about trends and how fantasy has evolved, and it just seems so crazy to me that I'm seeing some spots in drafts where I actually think the pass catching backs are overvalued. I mean, that's how much Mm. we've come around to people understanding how running backs actually score. And so if, if there are some players you'd like to be on who are overvalued, but there are players in explosive offenses, even if they are the third stringer who could be big time players in redraft where you can just cut them, you, you want to have some exposure. Uh, hey, real quick here. Uh, I, I, just I, wanna... was, I think I know one of the players Sean was referencing. Go okay. for it. I, well, based I just on had your, a quick observation. On... Do it. Do <laughs> it. Uh, all right. Sorry. Uh, I'm getting the sense from hearing someone talk about the difference between best ball and redraft was kind of these war, a war in the streets. One of the the various anchorman fights that we're having on Twitter, Sean (laughs) is advance rate bros. Just trying to get these teams to the playoffs and playoff trying to maximize our teams, trying to take big swings in these tournaments. I think you might be an advance rate, bro, which is like kind of shocking to me is, is like, uh, you know, you're, you're the contrarian, the contingent value, kind of guru but it seems like you're just trying to get usable weeks not take zeros get these teams to the playoffs here i I know what sean wants to say sean is i'm going to build the super team that wins the million dollar regular season prize and then also competes in week 17 that's (laughs) that's sean's answer (laughs) sean wasn't going to say that himself but that that is his goal you're and that right. should be our goal, right? I mean, <laughs> to win both. Yeah, <laughs> that should be our goal. No, I, I do think that, but I guess maybe where that's different, though, is that you're also still willing to take the biggest swings possible. And you might have teams that finish in last place in your league because the swings you're taking are so big, right? And that 
I think sometimes maybe the advancement rate stuff gets conflated with playing it safe. And I don't think anyone would characterize how Sean drafts as playing it safe, but it is an interesting distinction. I've noticed that too, Pat. And I was this guy, I was going to point out, Sean, having looked at your rankings that I can tell the market is higher on. It actually surprised me when I saw your ranking was on Naheem Hines because he had been kind of a poster boy for this pass catching upside. He's got a little juice in him. We know he can break off the big play. What makes you like have Gainwell in say a higher tier than Naheem Hines? There are a number of backs, I think, with similar prices that you can make even a bigger case for in terms of just how huge they could be. And one of the things I've always talked about with Zero RB, especially for redraft, is to have this balance of the big-time breakout stars, the pass-catching backs, and the guys with standalone value who then would become bigger pieces of the offense if the starter got hurt. And obviously you're not rooting for that, but you know that there are going to be injuries. In some ways, I think that because of the particular profiles that we're looking at right now, I'm moving a little bit more in the direction of this combination of sort of standalone value slash almost entirely breakout stars so that we can maximize our exposure to you know, the Rashad Penny, the Devin Singletary, all of that type of player. It doesn't mean that there wouldn't be some times where it came up and you might want to have a player that can help you get across the first month. Although I do think that's one of the things that's changed is that in, in, in many ways, zero RB has just gotten so easy now and that you do have just so many options late that you're, you're not even having to worry about that first month and, and trying to claw back. I mean, you can lead start to finish with these zero RB teams because you have all of that wide receiver, flex, tight end, elite QB. And then the guys that you end up at running back are still fine to get you through that first month. And we're not going to have a season like 2021 all the time to have so many massive performances, both in the regular season with guys like Fournette and Connor and Cordero Patterson, and then in the postseason with Michelle and Penny and Singletary. We shouldn't expect that to be the case in 2022. But I think there are a lot of profiles and a lot of intriguing backs in the second half of drafts to where even if it's not that many, you can still put together teams that have multiple guys who will be big time scorers in the fantasy playoffs. That makes sense. Where you, So <clears throat> I've noticed in the round nine range, I feel like the round nine range this year, and I'm thinking kind of more best ball drafts right now because that, that range gets pushed up a little bit in FFPC, but that feels like pretty juicy to me where – I don't, I don't remember it feeling quite as good last year. Ramondre Stevenson is in that range. You're getting guys pushed down, like even a CEH. Who I've, that's like one of the guys where I'm like, I'm not taking a CEH. And then CEH falls into like the, you know, pass pick 100 or something. It's like, oh, well, I'll, take, I'll take him here. So there's guys like Coral Patterson, uh, James Cook, Devin Singletary, Damian Harris now falling behind Ramondre Stevenson in a number of these leagues. So there's lots of guys. And – you know, sometimes you'll see like like Jacobs fell to the eighth in, in the ship chasing avalanche draft. So, you know, you'll see some of the dead zone guys slip pretty far. How are you playing that section of the draft? Because that that feels, um you know, like pretty critical to zero running back builds right now. There are a lot of guys there. The, the one backfield that is is odd and frustrating to me because I'd love to have some exposure, but it's just so expensive are the Packers. And so you're you're really having to draft with an injury and a, not all of it for sure, 
but a big chunk of the value you would gain from an injury already priced in. But other than that, I mean, you just have so many opportunities to choose from. And one of the things that I'm frustrated with as it relates to sort of the Zach Moss stuff and the James Cook stuff is that it's going to be harder to get Cook as he goes up because he's not being hit by that part of it seemingly. And yet, I mean, for a Singletary drafter, you don't want to act like there's not more risk now or that, you know, oh, I'm still going to be right in terms of my June take on this backfield. I mean, you're going to move with some of the developments and have your prices be a little bit different. But one of the things that's great about 2022 is that just even kind of in the last week, in terms of what the movement has been with Singletary, he's priced in a range where if he were the pure backup, that would be a good price. And that's probably not the case, right? I mean, maybe it is. And maybe James Cook will be that good. Maybe Zach Moss will take some goal line work. And maybe Singletary will go right back to what he was before the last month of the season last year. But because Singletary himself is good and because the Bills were so good with him, I mean, I would be a little bit surprised if that happens. But the good part about it and the reason that zero RB works is that you can make those picks. And if you're wrong, your team is still going to be good because you have some other guys. Yep. Uh, this is We can do this question here from Gem City Gridiron. I'm curious as well, Sean. He says, thoughts on how you think about zero RB in best ball versus redraft. And then he adds on which one would you be willing to push further? Well, all of our information from the roster construction explorers gives you a, a good feel for just how far you can legitimately push it in best ball. And because you're not going to be able to change your roster, you do need to have some specific positional allocations at different points in the draft. And then overall, your win rates are just going to be much better if you hit the ideal builds and, and much worse if you try and go crazy and try and do something that you're thinking, well, and this hasn't been done before. You'd have to have just an incredibly pure and lucky run to make those kinds of things work. Whereas in redraft, you can push it a long, long way. And you know, Blair and I drafted a team a couple of years ago that didn't take a running back in the first 10 rounds. And I mean, we were lucky. Anytime you finish toward the top, you're lucky. But we finished 31st overall because that type of thing in FFPC with the double flex, with the firepower you get from receivers, with your ability to let your roster improve and enrich itself during the course of the year, the team can just end up very, very good. And so, uh, and that's the nice thing about drafting and redraft is you just don't have to worry about it. Where in best ball, you have to actually employ some discipline and, and start taking some of those other players at the points where it just makes sense and, and structurally is the dictated dictated play for sure have you done i don't know i guess i've seen i'm not sure have you written up a zero rb article on a uh, underdog team you've done i think you i did i okay one of the things we've been trying to do is to kind of meld the stuff from the roster construction explorers with actual drafts and so listeners and, and readers don't necessarily like have to like that draft, but I do try and give sort of a, a blueprint for at least how I'm doing it with then the other things. Connor O'Driscoll has put together these fantastic articles on how to do hyper fragile, how to do zero RB, how to do anchor running back. 
And I've written some pieces, you know, using some of his work, some stuff from the roster construction explorer, and then my drafts to illustrate, you know, how I would do an extreme anchor, how I would do a zero RB dream team, how I would do an upgraded hyper fragile, which I mean, just add upgrade to anything and it's, it's going to be better. Right. Yeah. And I do think though, those articles too do really illustrate the power of stacking small edges right and you look and in one of connor's uh articles that he wrote too of how it's like not even that hard to actually get unique i think sometimes we get in this echo chamber and it seems like we're all doing the same things and that these edges are gone but you could look at the combination of zero rb with elite tight end with two qbs in the window it had like a 0.48 percent utilization rate last year in best ball mania too and so if you are continually stacking these small edges um you really can build super teams that are also structurally very unique and naturally put you on different combinations too if you're fortunate enough to get into the playoffs and i mean gretch has talked about it with our bime four team too like it wasn't a good team like it wasn't even that good of a team <laughs> had like a few good superstars on it but it was the structure it was the uniqueness and like it was just a bunch of combination of small edges that were able to get it to that point. So I think that's always a good thing uh, to I meant remember. That as, the, as the biggest compliment I could have given. No, it is. I look at it too, and I'm always yeah. like stunned of how it could get there. And I'm I also feel fortunate that we snuck it through last there's year. There's things you can control. There's things you can control. The stuff that you guys can control, you obviously executed as well as you possibly can. I mean, it's it's a it's just a it's like one of the best drafts of all time that I, I mentioned it last time we talked about it. it's just that team's been doing laps through my head i'm gonna write about it soon enough uh goose we appreciate this two hours of amazing information appreciate you guys we appreciate you guys we appreciate sean lending us his time it is always such a treat to get to listen to sean talk about fantasy football to read his stuff to listen to him with ben and with Colm, and uh it's just uh it's so fun you make fantasy football fun you help us discover these edges that we can push and uh and all have really successful years so sean thank you again uh for joining us tonight well it's been awesome and thank you for having me as i pointed out when we had you on some shows i mean my thesis that Peter Overzat rules the world is proved more and more accurate every day. Mm -hmm. I do want to mention that you had the fantastic series with Michael Doomer on best ball, and he is going to have an article called the best ball Bible coming out in the next handful of days. His work is fantastic. Make sure you look for that over at Rotoviz. Yeah. Make sure you're subscribed to Rotoviz basically no matter what. I mean, you can read all of Sean's stuff too. There's so much good stuff over there though. I also for the FFPC command center, which is like, we use that, every single main yes. event draft that we do so yeah. you know as we move from best ball season to redraft season you're still going to need that rotoviz stuff yeah i i mean we say it every year i am not on the rotoviz payroll i don't have an affiliate link how there's not a promo code pete for rotoviz i don't know and i will tell you it is the best bang for your buck subscription in the entire world if you said peter you can only have access to one fantasy subscription for the rest of your life I would pick Rotobiz, and I'm not bullshitting. It's that good. Sean's that good. The guys over there are that good. Uh, Sean, I don't know if uh, Dave told you 
this weekend I was drafting in Boston, the Boston Beantown Brawl, and Dave was right next to me. And uh, I was having to leave. And he's like, what? He's like, what is that cheat sheet you're using? And, and he was like, it looks familiar. I was like, oh, these are Sean's tears. He's like, oh, yeah, I helped make those. I was like, yeah, that's why it looks, uh, <laughs> looks, <laughs> familiar. Familiar. <laughs> it looks familiar to you. So, yeah, I can't say enough good stuff about what you guys are doing. And, and seriously, if you're somehow watching this show and not reading Sean and, and listening to him and subscribing to all the great work over at Rotoviz, you are legitimately doing it wrong. I also want to plug Pat's massive best ball article that went up today on NBC Sports Edge, kind of building on all of these concepts. Um, Pat does just like a phenomenal job of like ingesting all of this information in the Discord and then really pushing it forward with some really cool research on, you know, how to optimize for winning these best ball per- tournaments. Is there is there anything else I didn't mention about that, Pat? Because it was a it was an awesome article. Well, I would just say it relies heavily on the Road of His Roster Construction Explorer. It uh, references, uh, it's gonna be a two part series. Uh, There'll be a second part coming out on quarterbacks that is going to reference a lot of the work that Sean has done uh, on the quarterback window and how important it is to you know structurally build your teams around the quarterback position. But it also references work by uh, Connor Driscoll, uh, Madison, Park, Madison Parkhill, uh, Michael Dubner. So you know the road of his the road, the road of his uh, body of work on on best ball uh, kind of helped get me there. Gretch. I just finished listening to your guys's projection series with Leone. I had been savoring those had listened to my last one, the NFC South the other day. I do consider that to be a must listen to get ready for this final stretch of drafts. You've got posts coming out. I've been enjoying your um, divisional posts on the Substack. Anything else people can look forward to from, from your direction. A lot of writing on the Substack, And I was mentioned earlier, we got the mean shot and record a, a few really good shows if you like the projection shows we went through my projections a little bit sean picked through my projections and my rankings pretty good uh basically said all the spots that he thought my rankings were wrong it's kind of like the meanest sean's ever been honestly <laughs> three-part uh sort of series i guess that i think the first one maybe already dropped or probably dropped today and my um, only real question was about his Brees hall target total that was not your only question that was a question <laughs> But then uh, the second one I mentioned was all about the top five tight ends. It was a, a real big deep dive on that. I teased that a little bit earlier. That's a good good episode as well. We had a lot of fun yesterday recording multiple episodes that I would look out for from Stealing Bananas. Yeah, and as you guys saw on the schedule, this was a show uh, we absolutely uh, were looking forward to and had to get in before we went into straight drafting mode. We posted the schedule on Twitter, in the Discord, all that good stuff. If you guys want to join the Discord community, highly recommend it. You become a YouTube member, and then you get access to that Discord, all kinds of strategy talk going on in there, and uh, also planning for our Vegas trips. But yes, These next uh, few weeks are going to be awesome drafts on Wednesdays and Thursdays. We even have one on a Friday thrown in there. We're drafting with Crack Rock, with Sean, with Davis Maddock, with Hassan and Blair from Rotoviz, and, of course, a bunch of our uh, VIPs as well. So just super stoked for this next month. We appreciate all of you ship chasers. I feel like we're going to all have a massive year in these contests. Someone from the Rotoviz and Shift Chasing community is going to be taking down one of these big prizes. I absolutely can't wait. So for Pat, for Gretch, I'm Pete, and this is Sean Siegel, the best in the biz. We'll see you guys next time.